Aloha, I'm Joel McCower here at the Hilton Hawaiian Village in Waikiki Beach in Honolulu on the island of Oahu. On this week's edition, the sights and sounds from this week's Verge Hawaii Conference, exclusive interviews with some of Hawaii's diverse and visionary voices, a status report on the Aloha State's road to 100% renewable energy, President Trump and the rebound effect, and transformation from the bottom up. We're an island in an ocean of hope, this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's June 23rd, 2017. Welcome to this week's Verge Hawaii episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Hawaii, and with me is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, everyone. Aloha. It's been a long week. We've had this uh, conference. We've been here since, uh, I guess, uh, Sunday for me, Monday for for you, Heather. And um, But it's, it's just uh, been going on for months. We've, you've uh, Heather had set up a lot of these uh, sessions and panels, and it's been... A lot of work. This is also the first Verge Hawaii conference that you've been to. Um, give me some of your thoughts, impressions. What did you see compared to what you expected to see? Well, I love the local flavor of this conference. It's very um, intimate, actually. I mean, we talk a lot about um, the broader and bigger meta issues at the the, the classic uh, Verge Verge Heavy in in September um, each year or October, where, whenever it happens to fall. Um, but this, this show, he definitely hit on the, the very important technology themes and, and the, the, the policies and the regulations and all the sort of minutia that needs to happen. But I love the fact that, um, people talk about people and the, the intimate and personal things that need to happen in order to make the future of energy more inclusive. Yeah. That really struck me too, that, that, there's just so much, not just around people, but specifically around culture, that Hawaii is a state that's steeped in a rich, rich culture, and everything here has has meaning, and, and certainly nature and the elements and the physical geography is is all very personal and spiritual and cultural, and that plays very much into to the big picture here. And I, by the way, I think it's important that we that we identify the big picture here, and that's that the centerpiece of Verge Hawaii is the uh, state's mandate that the legislature passed and Governor David Ige signed uh, a couple of years ago to commit to 100% renewable energy in the electricity sector by 2045, the first state in the U.S. to have done that. Um, and so a lot of the conversation has been around how do you do that. And the cultural piece is not one that I really had much to do with. Well, so to, to that cultural piece... Um Yes, ingrained in the in the Hawaiian spirit, if you will, is the idea that the earth is part of them and that uh, you should take care of the earth. At the same time, I do want to say that that culture can be an obstacle as well because growth, you know, we talk about economic growth and, and some of the communities here um, don't necessarily have that as a goal. So it, you have to tread that fine line um, between moving forward into the future at a pace that's that's acceptable for this community. Um, so I think it's a, it's, it's a, one of those wonderful conflicts that's going to be um, creating just amazing things in the state in, in the years to come. Well, another person who's here for the first time at Verge Hawaii is Green Biz Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser. Anya, welcome to Hawaii. And But tell us how you, what you experienced and what you saw. Aloha, Joel and Heather, and I'm happy to join you here in Honolulu. It is my first Verge event. The first Green Biz 350 podcast I heard was actually the podcast uh, from the inaugural Verge Hawaii last year in 2016, and that was what kind of spurred my love affair with Green Biz, and now I'm here. So it's a bit of a wish fulfillment for me as well. Well, that's nice. I didn't realize that. That's a cool story. And um, speaking of stories. Storytelling is one theme that I've noticed uh, that I keep hearing here and it has to do with that spirit of aloha that is very, very tangible, uh, not just in, in Honolulu as I've experienced it, but also here at the conference. The first conversation that I had here was with Ramsey Tom, who also opened the conference, and he talked to me about the theme that is now permeating throughout the conference of 
all being in the same canoe and rowing towards the same goal. So the goal that was set, clean energy in the electricity sector by 2045 is the goal. But now we have to figure out how all of the pieces are going to come together. Utilities, transportation, buildings, energy, startup sector. How is it all going to come together to deliver on that timeline? What were some of the highlights for you, Anya? What are some of the speakers or events? I mean, we had a poet, we had uh, a, a mayor of uh, one of the islands uh, spontaneously burst into song. And we had a lot of fun moments. We had some great conversations. What were some of the things that you um, remember and, and will take with you? I will remember the dedication that absolutely everybody here has expressed towards reaching this goal, towards having the difficult conversations that need to be had. For example, the conversation, the heated conversation that Lorraine uh, Akiba, the commissioner of uh, PUC, the Public Utilities Commission, state of Hawaii, and the mayor of Maui had about whether regulation there needs to be less regulation to create the, allow the innovation that's going to bring the renewable technology to the islands. Um, but it was, you know, they, they parted with the laugh. So clearly the conversations are being had, the, the thinking is being done, and it's not just it's it's not just cheerleading. People are actually coming together to put their heads together and their resources together to make this happen. Lots more to come. And as you said, we'll be hearing from uh, some of the people we've already mentioned, like Ramsey Tom, uh, later on in the program. But um, for now, uh, thanks for stopping by. Mahalo. Anya Holomizer, Associate Editor. What we're going to do in this program is uh, we're going to uh, take take you there to, uh, on the main stage. We're going to play uh, some of the well, excerpts from some of the presentations, uh, maybe hear a little bit of the cultural things that we heard on stage. Uh, also play some of the interviews that we've done in the hallways and in the in, in rooms with some of the speakers. Uh, just to get a little bit of flavor of, of what people here are thinking. Well, let's bring in the woman who put this all together, Elaine Shea, our Verge Program Director. Um, <laughs> I know you're exhausted. It's been a long, long week, and not to mention the weeks before that, but how are you feeling right now about how things went? I had a good time. It was really fun. Um, I uh, was really nicely surprised by a number of different things. One of them was the level of candid conversations that were being had. I was under the impression before I came into Hawaii that people were going to be very close to the chest, holding their cards close to their chest and and only wanting to talk about what was being what was great and you know not really being uh, honest about their vulnerabilities and the things that were ahead that they needed to deal with. And I'm just really excited that people are thinking about how to engage all communities. They're thinking about uh, new kinds of strategies where there will be much more alignment. Uh, they're thinking about the benefits of innovation. They're trying to cultivate ways to increase that risk appetite, understanding that things need to happen now because the runway is getting shorter. I love it all. Do you think there's been a galvanizing effect maybe by the, the Trump administration just deciding to pull out of Paris? I mean, it seems like the local Paris commitment is getting stronger and stronger by each moment. But could you talk about the galvanizing energy here? Heather, thank you for bringing that up because it definitely seemed to be a theme, definitely over the, le uh, the first two days, where you know Denny McGinn, a uh, former vice admiral at the Na U.S. Navy, uh, brought up. We were talking about the clean energy transition in the age of Trump. Joel moderated this discussion. It was pretty awesome in that you know everybody was basically saying it's kind of like when you have a common enemy in war, uh, you just you galvanize toward fighting in unified. In a, unif in a unified manner, and so, and then it came again. It came up again with Andy Karsner talking about how at parties the the highlight is always the pinata, and his quote was, "You know, the White House put themselves out as a pinata, and then they handed out bats." And it should be noted that Andy was a part of the Republican administration of the George W. Bush as the Assistant Secretary of Energy for Renewables. Why do you think that the conversation was, as you say, sort of more candid and, and, and more open than? than we expected. What, what do you think that's about? Ramsey Tom, who opened our show, uh, did a great metaphor and an interactive exercise talking about how we have to get, we have to all get in the same canoe. If 
we're going to face these challenges together. And it just seemed to be this this metaphor that everyone, almost every single panel discussion, uh, started to kind of galvanize around. And we'll have a conversation with uh, Ramsey Tom a little bit later in the program. One of, one of the things that he said in the interview that we'll play a little bit, um, but just really struck me, um, it just gets you where you live kind of thing. But it also was really, I think, in many ways uh, emblematic of the conference. And what's special about having this conversation in Hawaii, he said, you know, when we talk about things like wind and sun and coal and natural gas and oil, we're not just talking about resources, we, we the people of Hawaii, we're not just talking about resources, we're talking about family, we're talking about relatives, that this is, these elements, um, this is part of who they are and who we are, and, and so this means a lot more to them than just something you burn or something you use to power things, and, and, and that cultural aspect, as you'll hear in the interview in a few minutes, was really something that you don't hear in the mainland. Yeah, so, you know, when people talk about the clean energy transition, they think about the technical things. They think about the microgrids and the, um, you know, community solar or the different kinds of storage devices and all of those kinds of things. But at the heart of it, this program was really about how do you get everyone on board with this transformation that's necessary? Because you know, without getting people understanding why it matters, uh, they're not going to, you're not going to actually create a market to be able to make this transition faster. And what's necessary right now is that we need to go fast. You talked about uh, people coming together and talking and being more honest and sort of creating the conditions for that. Um, you did a lot of that, Elaine, so thank you for creating those conditions and bringing everyone together and, and putting on such a great show. Uh, Elaine Shea, Verge Program Director, uh, thanks for stopping by and go get some rest. <laughs> thanks, Joel. So one of the things we did during the hustle and bustle of the week is uh, went out and talked to a few people just uh, in the hallways to ask them some questions. Anya Hollemeiser uh, took charge of that. Anya, tell us what you asked and um, then we'll play some audio. So I asked them, what will it take and what is the most important thing for Hawaii to achieve its clean energy goal in the electricity sector by 2045? And here's what they had to say. I'm Stan Osterman from the Hawaii Center for Advanced Transportation Technologies, part of the state of Hawaii's uh, Business Economic Development Tourism Branch. We need to be able to store intermittent renewable energy. Uh, we have wind power coming on board. We have a lot of photovoltaic on board already. In fact, Hawaiian Electric is on this island is pretty well saturated with intermittent renewables. You got to store energy for the nighttime and for off and, and other peak hours. The problem is, right now they're only looking at battery storage. People are kind of myopic on batteries as energy storage. But when you get into large scale, Europe is discovering that you need something besides batteries. They get too expensive, and it's really not an efficient use of batteries to go to large scale batteries. Lorraine Akiba, I'm a commissioner with the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission here in the state of Hawaii. As the PUC, we regulate the electric utilities, and so we are there to approve and incent the, uh, whether it's power purchase agreements that procure more renewable energy or applications to do something to modernize the grid and use the technology tools for energy efficiency, demand response, and um, energy storage that also enable more integration of renewables. A lot of those matters must come before us for approval. I've always been very much involved in, um, in the environment and in sustainability. I think just by virtue of being here, born and raised in, in Hawaii, even though I went away to the mainland for school, I think we all appreciate uh, that part of our cultural community DNA, which uh, values stewardship of the planet, sustainability. I mean, Native Hawaiians were practiced sustainability from ancient times, and we have that value system here in a way. We have respect for the land, we have respect for animals, we have respect for other people in our community. And it's a very strong moral compass that directs, and it's not just Hawaii, I think it directs a lot of the cities and states that you have seen now uh, 
rising up and saying, well, it doesn't matter that, uh, you know, the rhetoric that comes out of Washington, D.C., and it doesn't matter what uh, the White House wants to do. States and cities are going to commit to 100% renewable and to commit to the goals of the climate accord in the Paris Agreement. I think for the utilities, they will have to, I mean, as a regulator, we try to encourage and facilitate them to do what is um, in the public interest, and that's when we approve their applications, that's what we see. Is this just? Is this reasonable? Is this in the public interest? Is this prudent? And so we, we use that standard to approve their specific applications and requests to us, but ultimately it's up to the utilities to embrace this change as well and to become leaders in this um, and to really respond to customers to become the conductors of this complex symphony of technology and the integrated good of the future, the integrated energy network, because now electricity, gas, water, transportation are all interconnected. And because we can manage all those resources now with the advanced technology tools of artificial intelligence, sensors, big data analytics, that is the future. We can harness that technology to help make the planet sustainable. My name is Atsushi Shimizu, CEO of Charl Energy. We are developing next generation wind turbines. Next generation wind turbines. Yes. And what makes it next generation? Next generation means that our turbine can generate electricity in any extreme situation. So it has a different design. It, instead of it being more round, like the long arms, it has sort of square. Yes, yes, yes. Conventional wind turbine has a long history, over the hundred years. Uh, and I think they are like dinosaur. They have a great. Uh, uh, and they are giant and often broken by strong wind or storm or any other reason. So they are very weak, uh, especially in severe conditions such as island or mountain. Unfortunately, Japan is an island and there is a uh, turbulence uh, anywhere. So conventional wind turbine often broken every year. So we are trying to develop new wind turbine. It's suitable for such a severe condition, not only in Japan, uh, but all over the world. Uh, Hawaii is uh, one of the best places for our market. We are now testing our first prototype in Okinawa in Japan and Okinawa and Hawaii has uh, some friendship uh, about renewable energy in the island uh, conventional wind turbine uh, couldn't survive long time uh, especially Hawaii uh, here is uh, coming uh, many hurricanes uh, in Japan, uh, we have a typhoon, so such a severe island is our important uh, market. Can I add something? Yeah. yeah. There, that our turbine is not going to be mainstream because our turbine is fitted to the uh, such condition of the, the wind speed is tough or severe to enough to can, we cannot, the conventional turbine can survive there. So we're just like share the market with uh, the conventional turbine because they can survive in that is uh, our situation like Japan. So maybe uh, we can harness more wind energy than com that we can combine with a conventional wind turbine. Then we can we can uh, encourage more wind energy in the world over the world. Yes, that's what that's what we are hoping to say. My name is Hank Rogers. I'm the chairman of Blue Planet Foundation. I'm also the CEO of Blue Planet Energy. Blue Planet Energy is in the business of uh, providing energy storage, uh, specifically for microgrid and off-grid solutions. 
I think that there's, there needs to be more of a focus on local energy independence. Um, so the electric company spends a lot of money running cables a long distance, and that's where a lot of their expenses are in, in those lo remote, remote locations. And in today's world, those remote locations are better served by being energy independent. So if I was the utility, I would set up uh, wind and solar in all remote locations and then make microgrids rather than try and figure out how can I build a bigger cable across this island, to the other side of this island, which is expensive and it's frankly a waste. When you carry electricity over a long distance, there's loss. And there's all of the real estate that you have to have between your central power, centralized power plant and your remote location, which Again, um, it's, it's just like, like telephones. In the old days, you had to put telephone lines everywhere. Today, countries have skipped the whole telephone line thing, and they're going to cell phones. And so that requires just localized cell towers. And that's much cheaper, and, and it gives you much bigger coverage. And it's also um, more secure. If you've got a power line, that is a, point, a single point of failure. If you've got a, a hurricane, that power line goes down, you, you're, that end of the island goes down. Whereas if you've got small situations, you know, you might lose a couple of houses here and there, but in general, uh, everybody's okay. You know, the future is distributed energy. Um, we spend in Hawaii $5 billion a year on oil. 40% of that $5 billion is, is turned into electricity. Uh, and we are perfectly capable of generating that, that amount of electricity locally with wind, solar, geothermal, and maybe someday OTEC. So all those, all those tools that we have, that the utility should be like, yes, I'm gonna get my energy there instead. Instead of like, well, I'm gonna make my energy using fossil fuel and then like add little ornaments of renewable energy on the outside of it. It should be baseload. One of the people who graced the Verge Hawaii stage uh, multiple times this week is Ramsey Tom, whose title is Cultural Sustainability Planner. He works for a firm called PBR Hawaii. He's also a translator of sorts and then certainly a storyteller. He opened the event on Tuesday with, uh, by performing an oli, uh, which is a kind of a chant, a traditional chant, almost like a prayer that is used often in uh, gatherings in Hawaii. It goes back to one of the many ancient traditions that are still practiced here. Um, and then he gave a talk and uh, about the cultural side of, of getting to 100% renewable energy and some of, some of what's involved with that. Afterwards, I sat Ramsey down for a little chat. And the first question I wanted to ask him is, what is a cultural sustainability planner? Well, there are multiple meanings. One, the cultural meaning the culture of a particular place, you know, the root culture, if you would. So in this case in Hawaii, it's the Hawaiian culture. So I am a um, practitioner of the culture that has my feet in both worlds. So I'm allowed the opportunity to align cultural appropriate or appropriate cultural frameworks when it comes to buildings, programs, and services. So that's cultural sustainability. And the way our kupuna, our elders, behaved here in these islands, I think is a model for sustainability planners and thinkers today. So from a cultural sustainability standpoint, it looks at the way we lived sustainably in this place. Sustainability planner, is separate and distinct from the standpoint it looks at the way we plan buildings and our relationships to that, our places, in ways that are, the cliche term, sustainable. What does that really mean? In finding ways of, of aligning those practices in a contemporary space um, with forward thinking, systems thinking in mind. So as a cultural sustainability planner, I work with our landscaping team, our planning team, our permitting team, to align those things that are culturally appropriate to this particular place. So we're talking a lot of this conference about this uh, goal uh, mandated uh, by the state to increase and ultimately to get to 100% of renewable energy. What are some of the cultural issues involved in that? Well, you know, natural resources are the resources of the place. They're here. Um, and they've always been here. 
And as we've seen in other places like uh, Alaska, for instance, where residents enjoy the benefits of a royalty for the natural resources that are extracted and then used and others make money from it. So there is that question here. How do our natural resources that have always fed the people of this place now being extracted with really no direct benefit back to those of the place, regardless of whether you're born here? I mean, how do you make, make that? So that's an issue some people take with this whole renewable energy concept. Uh, the, the other part of it is that there are um, cultural relationships with the places. So these aren't just resources, they're relatives. We're part of that, we're related to that. So in some cases, to extract energy from the earth, the land, and the sea, in many ways is um, intruding upon our relatives and that relationship. So the difficulty is in the approach, while we may all benefit, the real question is who is actually giving and who is receiving. And so that is an issue. There are, there are people that have strong uh, feelings about that as well as beliefs. So how do those issues become part of the conversation and, and how do they manage to stay at the table? I mean, you, you're in the private sector, you're not government, so you, you, you're in no position to mandate this, but you're obviously an evangelist uh, and, and, and leading thinker and, and communicator on these kinds of things. Do you think that the Public Utilities Commission, the government, the private sector, all those that have come together to help uh, address this uh, renewable energy goal are thinking about uh, the relatives? Uh, no, I, I don't think directly. I think they recognize the importance of the culture, the, I would say the root culture, which we call the Hawaiian culture, people of Hawaii that were here prior to statehood and territories, et cetera, et cetera, the change in government. But I don't think we've effectively integrated that thinking into our policy making. Um, one, because we don't understand it. Two, a lot of it has to do with uh, different sets of priorities and beliefs. And so there is this notion that one's thinking and one's feeling can be the same. And we're experiencing that in different um, situations where the brain, those who are thinkers, are saying to the heart, you need to think. The heart is asking the brain to feel. We're asking two organs to do something that they significantly don't do. Mm. So the gap between brain and heart, thinking and feeling, is a constant one. And what we need to develop is the neck. <laughs> well, I've always, uh, I've long talked about the fact that one of the ways to integrate head and heart is through storytelling. And we're sitting here in what may be one of the world's great storytelling cultures. Talk a little bit about how you see the use of storytelling to bring together the, the disparate players that mm -hmm. need to come together and agree and then move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important when you understand the stories and that our knowledge transfer system was stories, that native thinking is native science because we practice and exercise the same uh, techniques, if you would. There is documentation, which may be different, which is oral and aural, but there's still observation involved. There's still hypotheses involved. There's theory, there's testing, all this. You don't live in a place for thousands of years successfully unless you've experimented and tried and done different things. Uh, in my book, that's a definition of science. So I think the real question is, how do you begin to align those two things that you have science two different ways of seeing the world and explaining that. So I think storytelling is one way that our elders, our kupuna, explain the phenomena around them in such ways that if we were careful enough and look back at those stories, I think we would find the science we're looking for to help us in the 21st century. And it's just taking the time and the respect. I think it's a matter of respect, of, of, of honoring those traditions, not just as children's stories that helped us go to bed at night. Well, you're talking about, in some ways, two different things. One is about preserving those stories and those traditions and those ancient cultures, but we're also talking about writing a new story, uh, a new story at least around not just energy, but the way 
we live and the way we relate to the planet, to, to Mother Earth. And can you do both of those? I think so, because culture is something that lives, not something that's frozen in time. I don't think anyone wants to be remembered as an artifact. Artifacts are moments in time that help us to remember, perhaps, reminisce, but also to build on. So I don't think anyone's culture is frozen, but instead is brought forward, and how do you do that? And so to be effective, we need to find ways of bringing what was best from our cultures into the present as we design new cultures. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the way we interact with our resources and those around us. So what's the story you hope to be able to tell, whether it's you or the next generation or the generation after that, about Hawaii and energy and sustainability. What is that story? Well, I think part of it is size does matter, but at the same time, it's recognizing that sometimes the smallest things on the planet influence the largest things on the planet. You know, plankton feeds the largest animal, the whale. And so we can't discount something because of its size or even its location. And Hawaii's size and location may mean little to others who occupy large continents and spaces. But yet there is a concept that says, as Hawaii goes, so does the world, right? Some of our elders would say that Hawaii is in the middle of the Pacific, the opu or the stomach of the planet. And everyone knows that when your stomach ups is upset, so is the rest of the body. <laughs> so it's in our best interest to heal the stomach and in the process, heal the rest of the body. So I like to think that people would be concerned about the health and well-being of Hawaii because as Hawaii goes, so does the world. What a great story. Ramsey Tom is cultural sustainability planner for PBR Hawaii. Ramsey, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. So we heard from a number of speakers this week um, about how we can use this energy transition to become more inclusive, to include more communities in the the great economic opportunities associated with clean power, solar, wind, et cetera, um, and not leave people behind, um, to help them rise out of poverty. And how we do this, um, the, the concept of, quote, energy justice is something that Shalonda Baker, the Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Energy Justice Program at the University of Hawaii, she's thinking about that quite a bit, and I um, asked her to tell me exactly what that means. Well, energy justice is an umbrella term that encapsulates a lot of different concepts, um, but essentially it is about bringing voices of historically marginalized people into the conversation regarding um, the energy transition. And of course, that's a, that's a hard thing to do and very complex. Is the current system just as it is? That's a very hard question. And um, I would say that the current system is inherently unjust and wealth is concentrated in the hands of very few. Individuals who pay the highest percentage of their, um, their salary and their, their income to electricity don't fully have an opportunity to engage in the production of energy. And that is an unjust um, system. And as we move into an ener our energy transition, hopefully we'll begin to design policies and frameworks that allow for those people to participate in energy production. Whose voices are we leaving out right now? I can speak concretely to Hawaii. In Hawaii, we don't have uniform engagement of the most marginalized um, persons in our society um, in the energy conversation. In particular, I'm thinking about communities on the Waianae Coast, which is the West Oahu, communities um, in Molokai. I've worked with both sets of communities, um, and they feel like they've been excluded from the shaping of our energy policy framework here in the state. And how do we pull them in? We talk to them. We, we, well, it's hard. I mean, I don't want to be trite. We 
we design structures that allow them to engage. We also first start with education. And as a law professor, I mean, that's something that is right up my alley. And I've been working with a group of law students over the last year and a half or so um, to develop tools that actually provide communities with the information regarding energy policy. So first, it's it's community engagement and it's it's community education. And from there, communities can begin to participate in, in their own energy future. Of course, uh, the idea of inclusion and, and social equity and inclusive clean power for everyone is is not just a, a Hawaii concept. It, it's pervading the mainland as well. And uh, we had another terrific speaker, Holmes Hummel, and um, she spoke about this concept in a Verge talk. It was absolutely um, riveting. And here's some highlights. When the stimulus funds that followed the recovery in the Great Recession began to recede, I was at the Department of Energy working with the finance working group. We called in some of the smartest people in Wall Street and the national labs to join us in the secretary's conference room, exploring our options for policies that would draw in more private sector capital to the clean energy economy and fast. In all those exchanges, I found myself preoccupied about energy upgrades to low-income housing. You might not think that's top of mind, but you see, it was one of the biggest programs in the Recovery Act. We'd just seen the demand for work stimulated in counties across the country, and now that workforce was looking for work. They needed to move from government-funded grants to privately financed transactions. That meant the contractors were now vetting their customers. Do you own your own home? Do you have a good credit score? Do you have a steady income? And what we saw from the experience in the field was that the most common financing instruments were systematically disqualifying or discouraging some of the very people we were trying to reach. My heart just sank. Because what we could see was that the financing instruments were actually a part of what was locking people out of the clean energy economy by the millions. How on earth would we get to 100% if we keep disqualifying half of everybody below median income? And it's not just a technical question. Much more is on the line. How will Champions for Clean Energy ever win the hearts and minds of a constituency that's broad enough and strong enough to win the policies we know are needed to mobilize investment on a scale that matters and a time frame that makes a difference? Inclusion is a key, fundamental part of reaching 100%. I became so convinced of that that when I departed my post at the Department of Energy, I founded Clean Energy Works and changed the course of my career to focus on opening the clean energy economy for all. And when I joined others in the field on that quest, I kept in mind some advice from my father. He always told me, if a job is taking too long, you're using the wrong tool. Look for a different tool. Thankfully, we had some clues because the experts at the National Labs had found signs of a breakthrough in a surprising place, Kansas. I followed that lead, and to my own surprise, it actually led me back across the country to eastern Kentucky. That's a place with a zone of persistent poverty that is so large you can drive for hours and still be inside it. Turns out that utilities there have been partnering with a local financial institution to offer inclusive financing based on the same pay-as-you-save system that had been used in Kansas. Here's how it works. Utilities can invest in anything on the customer side of the meter that's cost-effective. As long as the customer agrees it's not a charity program, they opt into a terms of service agreement, a tariff, that allows the utility to recover its cost on the bill with a charge that's less than the estimated savings. The utility's investment is assigned to the meter and not to the person. That's why the customer can come and go, move, buy and sell, and a new customer will come in and receive all the benefits, including the savings of the upgrade, and therefore be able to pay for the cost recovery until the point that the utility's costs have been fully recovered and the upgrade belongs to the building owner. I saw what was happening in Kentucky and I thought, well, could we do this anywhere? Could we do it where it matters most? In my home state of North Carolina, there's a utility that has a service area that's practically covered in persistent poverty counties. The, half of the customers have an average monthly bill of $200 or more, and it's not because the prices are high like they are here. It's because the residents can't afford the energy upgrades that their aging houses need, and never mind solar power. 
So the utility had actually worked for a year on a program design to offer an on-bill loan program. And when they offered it to 1,000 customers that had the highest bills, they were surprised to find that fewer than five were willing or able to complete the process and secure the financing to make that investment. The disappointed CEO, Curtis Wynn, and I had a chat, and I asked him, have you seen what's going on in eastern Kentucky? When he went to look, he liked what he saw. In 90 days after their board approved an inclusive financing program, we'd lined up $6 million of unsubsidized, low-cost capital for them to invest. In 90 days after their program was launched, they had a backlog of 150 households. That stark contrast showed the difference between a program that wasn't built to fly and one that couldn't be stopped. Next in line was actually a utility in another persistent poverty area of southern Arkansas, Washita Electric. They already had an on-bill loan program. They had some experience and infrastructure. They actually had already received national recognition for best practices in on-bill loans, but they knew it was underperforming the true market potential. So we worked with them on a financial analysis. Sure enough, they decided to close the loan program and open a more inclusive tariff-based pay-as-you-save program in its place. They went to the Arkansas Utility Commission, which soon decided, similar to the outcomes in Kansas and Kentucky, to cast a vote to approve unanimously. Months later, Washita Electric reported to the field that compared to their debt-based option, customer participation had doubled. They were able to serve renters they used to qualify. Every renter they'd made an offer to had accepted. The average project size was double, and the total investment velocity was quadrupled. This is what showed us that utilities that had some experience with the infrastructure of on-bill financing actually had a head start, and it was an accelerator for them when they turned toward a more inclusive option. Now, that got me to thinking, gosh, if we can really do this anywhere, can we do it for more types of solutions, other applications? One state already had experience with solar water thermal, uh, rooftop solar thermal systems. Their pilot had been so successful they deployed all their capital in two-thirds of the time allotted with no free riders. Another utility in a different state was looking at tariffed on-bill financing as an inclusive option for offering their customers on-site storage after Hurricane Matthew knocked them out for a week. I actually started thinking about the transportation sector because if it's good for stationary storage, it should be good for mobile storage. What about public transit? What if electric buses could displace the dirty diesel buses that have been trolling low-income neighborhoods for decades? They're just about to reach cost parity on a life cycle cost basis. Utilities could make a difference if they accelerate investment in beneficial transportation in the transportation sector. And those of you here yesterday might have heard the CEO from Hawaii Electric Industries musing about exactly that vision. The Climate Strategies Accelerator, backed by the Packard Foundation, gave Clean Energy Works the opportunity to explore this enormous opportunity. And we're excited to begin applying tariff-based solutions to onboard storage of buses because we've already seen what it can do to draw investment to buildings. Now, everywhere I go, New York, Illinois, Minnesota, California, Hawaii, I see the imprint of the clean energy divide on the politics that affect the clean energy policy landscape. What gives me hope is thinking about the postcards that could be written to us from places of persistent poverty that you may not have visited. What would their postcard say from eastern Kentucky, from the Black Belt of down east North Carolina, from southern Arkansas? It might say, inclusive financing opens the clean energy economy for all. It's on the path to 100%. So why wait? So one of the reasons we're here in Hawaii in the first place is at the invitation and actually partnership of the Hawaii State Energy Office. That's the uh, state agency that's uh, overseeing this uh, implementation of the state's mandate to 100% renewable energy. And I sat and talked to the director of the state's Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism, under which the state energy office exists, Luis Salaveria, uh, to talk a little bit about um, how things are going. I think the progress has been rapid and robust. 
but a lot of it has happened fairly organically, and, and, and in many ways, we really hit upon those things that were very quick to, to happen, especially when it comes to uh, distributed uh, energy resources for residential solar. I mean, we're leading the nation when it comes to that particular technology. And, and so that, from that particular perspective, it's been robust, it's been fast, and now we're hitting that challenge is now going forward and, and meeting that next quartile. The next, the, the next 25% is gonna be some of the hardest decisions and some of the hardest types of, of uh, uh, pushing forward that we're gonna need to do as a state going forward. So everything that has happened so far has been fast, it's been robust, everybody's been happy. I think the challenge is gonna come uh, for the next 25%. So we've picked the low-hanging fruit so far, and what needs to happen for that 25%? First of all, when do you expect to get to 50%, so that next 25%, because you're at about 25% now. What's the time frame, and what needs to happen to meet that goal? Well, a couple of things definitely need to happen. And, and the goal is mandated in statute that we need to be at 50% by 2030, uh, actually. So when you think about it, that's not that far away. Uh, so we think we're gonna, we know we're gonna hit the goal of 30% by 2020. Uh, and some of the things that are gonna critically have and essentially have to happen going forward is taking a look at how the utility uh, does business. I'm not talking about an ownership issue, but basically how the utility engages the community, works with policymakers, works with the regulators, and ensures that they're providing economic, reliable, and safe power to all of the citizens in the state of Hawaii. So that's a huge, huge challenge that we need to address in getting to the next 25%. So what about the technologies? Because as you're looking at uh, for between now and, and 2030 to a dozen years, I mean, we've seen so much technology change just in the past three or four or five years. How do you plan for that? Uh, we plan for it by allowing and taking a very systems approach that provides for flexibility for tech new technology coming onto the grid. Uh, we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket, uh, but we know we need to keep moving forward and we need to be looking at everything in a, from a risk profile and looking at a diversified portfolio. I, I aken it to like what people do with their own investment portfolios. You know, you have some that are high performing, you have some that are not as high performing but are stable and consistent. It's almost like having intermittent power and firm base power. You need a combination of all of these different things and you need to make sure that as technology advances in each one of those renewable resources, you have room on the grid for for it to come on board. Yeah, but I can sell a stock with a, with a click or two, and that's not true when you're doing some large-scale energy um, uh, installations mm -hmm. or investing millions or tens of millions of dollars in certain technologies. So do you have a sense that uh, you know solar is going to be solar given that it's going to, technology is going to change? How do you think about it? It, it seems a, a really challenging question to take on in terms of looking at long-term uh, technology decisions. Oh no, absolutely. It's, you know, we engage the community. Events such as Verge are great opportunities for us to understand what's happening in the industry, what's happening in the technology sector associated with energy. And we have to compile all of this information together and make sure that we are making the right decisions going forward. But also, again, just leave uh, flexibility. And, and you're right, you can, you can, sell a stock very easily right now, but the decisions that are being made for the state of Hawaii's energy ecosystem are going to be decisions that people are going to have to live with for over 20 years. We talked on stage, uh, Randy Iwase, uh, the head of the State Public Utility Commission, about the what he called the man or woman at the bus stop, the average citizen, talking about being bought into this uh, as uh, a government agency that's looking at business and economic development and tourism. It seems that your office is in a good place to, to talk to them. Are you doing that? And what are some of the messages that you think need to get out there? Uh, the message, well, yes, we are definitely doing it. Uh, any opportunity that I have to talk to the average person on the street or a group of individuals, whether it's a rotary club or whether it's a, uh, a specific business organization or even a social organization, I tell them the reason why the state of Hawaii is moving towards clean and renewable energy. Uh, a lot of it is for economic reasons. A lot of it is also for climate reasons. And a lot of it is also for cultural and historical reasons too as well. And so, you know, we are trying to get that message 
out there uh, continually. But what we do need is, is we do need some help, you know. And many times, you know, to use the paraphrase, I, I hate to be the guy that, you know, hey, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Mm -hmm. And so we need more cheerleaders out there that are talking about all of the good things that are happening in Hawaii, and not just Hawaii, throughout the world, actually. You are seeing an abundance and an emergence of leaders that are really starting to take this issue on, and they recognize that clean and renewable energy is not only good for the environment, it makes long-term economic sense. You mentioned cultural and historic uh, issues. Uh, what are some of those? How do they play into uh, to the complexity of solving this problem? And, and what are some of the considerations that maybe some other states that don't necessarily have tribes or indigenous mm -hmm. cultures uh, you know, may not be thinking about that is, is unique to Hawaii? Well, I think Hawaii, one, as uh, being a place that has uh, you know, uh, an indigenous population that is very, very in tuned with, with the land and with the environment. You know, they were sustainable before sustainable was even a word. And so I think there's so many lessons to be learned about the way uh, people used to live. And I'm not knocking modern life, but I think a lot of it is an attitude and the way people approach their relationship with their environment, their relationship with, you know, with the way that they, they consume things, the way that they uh, you know, the, the way that they just live, actually, I think that there's a lot that can be learned historically and culturally from indigenous people, whether it's from Hawaii or whether it's anywhere else in the world, uh, that, you know, a lot of the answers around sustainability have been answered before. So are you optimistic about all that lies ahead in the next five or 10 years for this state energy goal? Oh, I'm uh, absolutely optimistic. And I'm saying that from the perspective of watching and hearing and talking to the right people, I think you're going to see an emergence of leaders. I think people are starting to really kind of recognize uh, what, you know, what this all means. And, and this seems a, such an esoteric discussion, but it is more than just energy. It is the way that people are going to be living on this earth, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now. Because if you look at the trajectory of where we are, we need to have major solutions in order for people to, to live comfortably and for, for, this, uh, for, for our society and our planet to continue to, to, to be able to progress going forward and evolve as a, as a species, really. Luis Olivares is uh, the director of the Hawaii Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. Thanks so much. Thank you. So being the geek that I am, I glommed onto all of the innovation sessions here at Verge in the last week. And um, one of the, the things I was fascinated by was not, not just the technical innovation that needs to happen, but also the business model innovation. So what needs to happen on a, on a regulatory, we've discussed the cultural aspects of a lot. I spoke to Andrew Beebe, the managing director of Obvious Ventures, about both types of innovation. Here's what he had to say. Your panel hit on the theme of innovation, and there's clearly two different sorts of innovation that we need to make this transition happen. Who do you think is leading on the technology uh, innovation? Let's, let's not forget that a decade ago, wind and solar were not ready for prime time in terms of can they actually generate the power, can they get built out fast enough, and now they are. So let's not forget that that's happened. The generation side, in my opinion, is, um, is effectively a done deal. That's very powerful. The energy storage um, has two roles. One is to smooth out those power curves of wind and solar, and then the other is to figure out how we deal with seasonal changes. And those seasonal, right. the, the smoothing is happening now, and you're seeing large-scale um, developers like my old company, NextEra Energy, but also Sempra and Hico and others, developing projects that are firm, meaning that the power looks like the power coming off of a power plant because the, the batteries are helping to smooth the power curve when there's a spike. Um, that's breakthrough. These long-term energy storage issues like we just don't generate enough solar power in the winter uh, have not really been solved yet, and those are right. real challenges that we right. have to address. So right. there's going to be, there will be winners there. Some of it is old-fashioned like pumped hydro and other technologies. Right. What about on the business model side? Is that where we need more innovation or, or yeah. just as much? Having um, big corporate buyers sign PPAs with large energy companies is a sort of a business model innovation. 
having them buy what are called synthetic PPAs, where they're effectively buying a new power plant, um, renewable power plant, but they're not really buying it, and they have some exposure on reselling some of their power. Those are very, very innovative. There's also a lot of software being used by utilities. We're investors in a company called Imbala, which is a combination of energy and balance, the words, trying to get uh, utilities, trying to help utilities balance the two-way flow of electrons at the edge of the distribution. There are a lot of companies, other companies like Spire, who um, uh, I think are presenting here at this conference, who are doing that as well. There's going to be a lot of innovation there. And you brought up a great question, which actually kind of got dodged. Didn't really get answered, but the, the federal, like, what should the federal role? Well, be in, um, in Admiral, yeah, Admiral yeah. McGinty um, had a great. I talked to him backstage, and he was just talking about, look, if there's a miracle, it would be a cap and trade or a carbon tax. I think is specifically what he said. I 100% agree with that. If we could wave a magic wand and get a, and a carbon tax, I would be very happy. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and in my miracle politically is just don't unwind a lot of what we've done already. I'm not looking, I mean, you know, a year ago under a different administration, I would have had a more ambitious agenda out of Washington. Today, I think the real effort is just to make sure we're not really rolling back. We are rolling back some, which is unfortunate, but um, particularly not on the environmental side of the regulation, but from an energy standpoint, not rolling back the mechanisms that are already there to support a vibrant, very job-generating uh, industry in the U.S. Uh, is has got to be a key focus. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Well, almost. Uh, before we sign off, I want to play a little bit of an excerpt from Kealoa, uh, who is the first poet laureate of Hawaii and who graced us with his presence on the main stage. He's the first poet to perform at the Hawaii's governor's inauguration. He's a gifted storyteller and has performed at the White House. Anyway, it was, suffice to say, a riveting performance. Um, let me first just say that, as usual, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories, events mentioned in this episode. You should also check out the Verge virtual live stream, which is now ended, of course, but is available on demand if you want to see the full or length uh, version of some of these things that we've been talking about, you can do that uh, as well. Thanks to our podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us as always, by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. And we'll be back from the mainland next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. But before I sign off, let's hear a little bit of Kealoa. And until then, aloha. Listen to the wind. You can hear the world breathing if you just listen. These breezes whisper melodies of distant lands transcribed through time. They are like wind chimes, swirling energy-carrying seeds of wisdom. You can hear them as they blow through leaves of ancient trees. These breezes breathing and exhaling, telling the stories of this world for an eternity. Listen to the sea. It is the lifeblood of this planet, pumping and pulsing through every crevice, connecting the nations of this world through its embrace, tracing patterns in the sands of our birthlands, crashing on shores, expanding past the horizon, reaching deep into the depths of our imaginations. Listen to the land. It is the Earth's belly, rumbling and churning, its tectonic plate shift. We sift through its soils with sticks, stones break into fragments, giving birth to life, giving birth to us. We are grateful. For every gift that Mother Earth gives, we live. Because the life of this land is perpetuated in righteousness, we are blessed. To see her beauty, taste her elegance, smell her power, touch her essence. This world becomes a miracle when you take time. We've been growing a garden around our place. We've been growing a garden around our place. We don't have much space, but we've been working the soil beneath our feet. Watching the green sprout over the concrete, watching the vines rewrite the graffiti on the walls. And we know that this garden is a simple symbol. That there is so much more to be done in this world, and sometimes it gets overwhelming. But we're taking responsibility for what we can control. And so, we're starting by planting seeds and caretaking, making the ecosystem thrive. Watching the earth come alive, reflecting on the way we're living our daily lives. 
See, we've been growing a garden over time, so when we step outside, we can visualize what green energy looks like to remind ourselves that we are no different from the trees, that all the energy we need can come from the sun, the wind, the sea, and the infinite warmth of geothermal heat. And we know that another world is possible, that no matter how hopeless any one of us feels, this movement is real, that our convictions lead to innovations, lead to conservation, that technology must serve ecology. And so this garden is how we redefine the boundary lines between us and the global community. We have come to learn that there's no separation, that every nation on this blue planet is symbiotically fused, that everything we do affects some part of you, so we've been inspired to limit our impact, leave our surroundings better off than when we arrive, we have vowed to reverse the destructive tide before we die. See, we've been growing a garden for our children, leaving a better world for them to live in, teaching them to caretake what they've been given, show them to take a stand for sustainability, how to find the balance between progress and preservation, guide the way to a self-reliant revolution. You see, this garden is for our children. This garden is our pledge to them. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.